It is Friday the 18th of January 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 23 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. Thanks very much for listening in to the second episode of 2019. A couple of quick things before we kick off. There hasn't really been much in the way of company updates during the week and they'll no doubt come over the next couple of months as we get into earnings season and everything like that. Apart from Michael Hill Jeweler, which is a stock we've covered a bit recently, so I decided to give it a miss. So this week I thought we'd do things a little bit differently, but first there was a bit of news from overseas during the week and that was that Vanguard founder Jack Bogle passed away at the age of 29. So Bogle was pretty much the founder of the index fund or the father of the index fund and was behind the real drive towards low fees in that industry. So Warren Buffett has said that Bogle has done more for individual investors than any other individual in the world. So some pretty high praise for for Jack Bogle there. So a big loss in the investing world. So moving on, for for, for this episode anyway, I mentioned that we'd we'd do something a little bit different. So I'll talk firstly about a a recent trade that I did. I'll go into quite a bit of detail of this, so hopefully you'll find it interesting. The second thing I'll talk about is the correct way to think about stock prices and what they mean. And to leave the best for last, I'll talk about marijuana companies and where I see the industry at the moment. I know a lot of you are interested in that, so make sure you listen to the end. Finally, if you haven't already, make sure you go on Facebook and give the podcast a like by searching Stock Market Movers. Also, if you have any questions that you would like to be addressed in the podcast, give me an email at jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. So we'll, we'll get straight on into it. I'm going to tell you about a recent trade of mine. I think this is the first time I've done that on the podcast, and the only reason I'm doing it is because it it has closed now, so it's over. And I don't normally talk about anything I do in in the investing world on the podcast, and the reason for that is I know there's a lot of people that that may listen to it that may be influenced by what I'm doing and and rush out and, and do it themselves, and that's the last thing I want. So I'd like to emphasize that this was a trade as opposed to an investment. Um, and it was a trade that had quite a few highs and lows throughout the story. So I'll tell the story because it's, prob- it's probably quite interesting for you as listeners. And there might well be a lesson or two in there as well. So I'll start out with the origin of the trade, how it evolved and how it ended. So I was reading the script, which is a newsletter that the Shareholders Association puts out every so often. For those that of you that aren't, I'd recommend that you join your local shareholders association. They're throughout the country. Uh, they do some excellent stuff for investors in New Zealand. It only costs a hundred dollars or so to join, and the thing I like the most about it is you can go along to their presentation evenings and watch some presentations from CEOs and other things as well. And it's it's, it's quite a good night out for those that are that way inclined. I'm on the committee at the Auckland branch, so if you'd like more information about it, let me know. Send me an email or, or give me a call or whatever. Anyway. So I was reading the script and was browsing over the company updates and I saw a little blurb about Orion Healthcare and the buyback, you know, the sort of takeover thing that happened there. I know we've discussed it in the past. So Orion was a company that I'd never been interested in, but the note got my attention. So I decided that I needed to find out more about it. It actually reminds me of an episode we did a while back about stock tips. I think it was episode 17. Go back and listen to it. But basically, I was talking on the episode about how you can find stock ideas and stock tips anywhere. And that day, I happened to find one in the shareholders letter. Although it wasn't in the form of a tip, it was just a sort of a news update that got my attention. So 
it's important to note that I didn't go out and, and, and take action just because of the paragraph or two tip. The tip was just the starting point, and it was important that you do your own research from there. Wherever you get your tips for, you have to do your own research. And I had to do a bit of legwork on this one. The buyback was quite a complicated deal, and it was accompanied by truckloads of information. There were investor presentations, shareholder addresses, chairman's addresses, CEO addresses, and and about a 100-page buyback document as well. I had to read parts of it a few times to get my head around some of the detail, and there are still parts of things involved, actually, that I, I probably, to be honest, didn't fully understand, but I had the most of it. It's too much to explain here, but this is the way I interpreted things, and I'll quickly summarise. So Orion has three businesses. Two of them pretty much stink, and, and one of them is great. So shareholders largely... The shareholders had largely given up on the company, and, and the board and the company, in my view, was was left with little option than to go find a suitor and go to find someone to take it on or take it over or else the outcome would be pretty grim. And they couldn't find anyone that would want to buy the whole company, buy the whole three businesses. Instead, they found a company that was prepared to buy most of the good businesses and not really the other two, although they did have to buy some. So it wasn't a standard takeover and it was structured as a share buyback where your shares were bought off you by the company at a certain price. It was like a tender. You basically had the option to accept the price they offered, partially accept or ignore it. So are you following me? Anyway, <laughs> because the company could, could not be sure of its cash flows, they didn't give a specific price for the takeover. They gave a, they gave a buyout range, so a, a range in price. So I'll run through the time frame of my involvement in the proceedings. So the, the deal was announced in early July that the buyback range would be between 124 and 129 per share. They obviously were concerned about the company cash flows because on the 7th of September, they downgraded this range between 116 and 126. And that was about a month later, I, I read this in the script magazine and, and I read that the deal range had been lowered. And, and this was the first I heard of the deal and I became interested. What I saw was that the stock was languishing at around 105 per share, which is a 10.5% discount to the bottom end of the buyback range at 116. So after researching the deal in detail, I came to the conclusion that it would probably go through. Through That was my view. There were some hoops to jump through, such as overseas investment approval, shareholder approval and the like, but I felt that the deal had to go through because it, if it didn't, the company did not have a lot of choice. So I felt like it was the only hand that they had left. I felt that it was something that they would make happen because they had to. And... You know, of course, there was a chance that the deal failed, but I felt this was a small chance. So I placed a limit order to buy at one hundred five per share, one dollar oh five per share on the seventeenth of October. It's important to note that the stock was really liquid; it was hardly trading, and I think my order it wasn't that big, but it filled over three days. And you know, so I don't think it was something that you could have done if you had a truckload of money to invest. Anyway, after it filled at one hundred one hundred five. The next update was on the 24th of October, and that was when the Overseas Investment Office announced that they approved the transaction. And from my memory at this stage, the stock didn't really budge, and that suggested that the rest of the market felt that the overseas approval was, was definitely going to happen. So the next week, on, on the 31st of October, so you can see here by the dates that they're moving pretty fast. Once they got the Overseas Investment Approval, they were bang, they were moving. Um, they announced that they'd finalised the deal. Now the stock started to move, and I think it closed the next session at, at 1.11. So the, the movement suggested to me that the market felt like the, that the risk in the transaction was that it would not go ahead, which, as I suggested, I didn't feel like it was much of a risk because I didn't think the company had too many other options. Anyway, so 
where we were now is that we had in essence a completed deal that was still trading well below its deal price. So the next update on the 5th of November was when the company updated its estimated buy range to buyout range to 120 to 125. So that, that lifted the bottom end of the range from 116 to 120. And that increase prompted me to buy more shares. This time I bought more at $1.13. And then nothing much happened for a couple of weeks until the 3rd of December when the company came out with a final buyback price of 122.4. So by now, the stock was trading at 118 per share, so still below the buyout price. Unfortunately, I didn't have any more money at this stage to buy any more. So I, I, to be honest, if I had more money then, I probably would have, so I had to sit tight. During this time, I accepted the offer to have all my shares bought back off me at 122.4. The next significant date came on the 10th of December when I received my money in the bank account from the trade, not including brokerage. This is a good trade, not including brokerage, the absolute return on the trade for my first, first purchase was 16.57%. There were 54 days between my first purchase and when I got the money, so the annualised return for that trade was 112%. On the second purchase at 113, the absolute return was 8.31%, and the trade was was in the pen for 35 days, so the annualised return was 86.66%. And you know that's where it should have ended. Um, and it's probably I'll, I'll go into that in a second, but it's worth reminding of of the risks here. I mean, I, I felt that the deal was likely to happen, but it was no guarantee. If I was wrong on my analysis, then the downside would likely have been a lot, lot worse. You know, I could have been long in a lot, in a, in a lot of ways. The overseas investment office might have decided that the 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 deal shouldn't go through, or the company might have had more cash flow issues and reduced the range. So there was there was no guarantee it was going through, but I, I felt it probably would. And I must have been feeling confident here because I got slack. After I got my money back, I saw that there were still shares available well below the buyout price. To me, this seemed insane. So I called up Link Market Services, and Link Link was the administrators for the transaction. And I asked, and it was, this happened over a few different phone calls because I really wanted to understand it, or at least I thought I did, um, that if I bought the shares today, would I be able to include them on the tender offer? So they told me that I'd be able to. So I was thinking, jackpot, I've literally found a risk-free way of making a profit. I, th I was thinking I can keep buying the shares and I can keep tendering them until there's no more shares left and I can make an awful lot of money. So I took all the money from the first few trades and I bought Orion Healthcare at an average price of one nineteen and a third. So this was on the 11th of December and I was thinking, easy money, jackpot. I went to tender the shares on the website and realised that I couldn't do it. I thought that this must have been because I was not on the register yet and the shares hadn't settled. So I called Link and they said, that's right, you just have to wait a couple of days and then you'll be able to do it. A couple of days passed and I called Link and said I'd like to accept the offer. After some confusion, I was told on the phone that the deadline had actually passed and I couldn't do it. It turns out that there was a record date with the transaction and it had passed ages ago. So that was ages ago being when I, on, on the first trades I did, before that, when I had to accept them then. So it was quite a while before. So in my excitement to get to the second transaction, I'd failed to recheck the documents. If I'd read them, I would have known. If I'd read them again, I would have remembered, I would have known. So I was now in quite a pickle. I, I didn't want the shares and I couldn't really sell them because there's no liquidity and I'd have to realize a pretty big loss. So luckily for me, there were about 10 different <laughs> recorded phone conversations between myself and Link. And and, and during those conversations, they basically told me that I would be able to participate. So I think they were they, they went away and they were able to pull some strings and, and make it happen. So they, they managed to get me an allocation there. So 
I got lucky, but it was pure luck. And it, when, when I thought about it later, it wasn't Link's fault, it was mine. I mean, the people at the Link Call Center cannot be expected to know every single detail about every single stock. I mean, 200 of them or whatever there is, well, maybe not 200 of the NZX, but you know what I mean. They can't be expected to know every detail of every corporate action of every stock and everything that happens. So it was an escape out of jail for me. And, and I remember, and a reminder that it's so important to do your own research and to know what you're doing. You know, I, I had nearly gotten caught out through carelessness, not not because I didn't know what I was doing, just because I was absolutely careless. And I'm not proud of it, but the annualised return on the final trade was 94.9%, but I almost don't count it because it could have so easily been worse. I thought the first trade was quite intelligent, but the second one was obviously dumb. So what lessons can be learned from this? The first is that you can find stock tips every, anywhere. I, I found the I got the idea from that from the the script magazine and and the shareholders association and you know that membership's paid for for the rest of time now from that trade which is fantastic. The second is that if you do your own legwork, you can find edges in the market that other people haven't factored in. And I and when you think about it, I doubt that very many people read the full one hundred and twelve page buyback document. I wouldn't be surprised if more than a dozen or so, maybe maybe more, maybe less people read that full document that weren't lawyers that weren't involved in the transaction. So the third is that it is important to take responsibility for your account and not get careless with what you're doing. I was nearly caught out by my confidence and it was almost an expensive lesson. It wouldn't have quite wiped out the first trades, but it was it was would have been an expensive lesson. So I guess the I guess the one silver lining to wrap up is that I'm one of the only investors and it sounds a bit arrogant, but I'm one of the only investors out there to make money in New Zealand out of of Orion Healthcare. So that's one thing to make me feel better. I may have spoken about this on the podcast before, so forgive me if it's something that you're hearing for a second time. It might also be one that if you're an experienced stock investor that you can probably skip to the next segment on. I guess that you could also call this a beware of segment. We haven't done one of those in a while. This, so this will be it. Beware of falling into the trap of making the assumption of the size of the company based on its share price. Now, I do admit that more often than not, if a stock is $0.02 cents per share, then it is a smaller then it is a smaller company than if it's a hundred dollars a share, but most of the time it has zero relevance. And one of the most common things you'll hear new investors say in the stock market is that they can't buy stock A because its share price at whatever price it is is too high. Or they prefer stock A over stock B because stock A is one dollar a share and stock B is is ten dollars per share. And this should never be the justification for buying or selling a stock. And if if you've said this in the past, don't, don't worry. It's probably something that most of us have done at some point in their investing career. And I actually quite often hear people that should know better saying the same thing. So to understand this, it's worth thinking about how share price is calculated. And to do that, you take the total value of the company, otherwise known as its market, market capitalization, or and another way of thinking about it is the theoretical cost that it will cost you to buy all the shares in the company and own it 100%. And then you divide it by the total number of shares on issue. So if a company had a market cap of $100 and there are 100 shares on issue, then the stock price is $1 per share. And that's taken by taking the market cap of $100 and dividing it by 100 shares. Now, if the stock had a market cap of $100 million and there's 300 million shares on issue, then the stock price is $0.33 cents per share or 
by taking 100 million and dividing it by 300 million. Now, comparing these two companies just by the share price would make sense if each company had exactly the same number of shares on issue. Say if it was a requirement that each company had 100 million shares on issue. Now, then you could compare the share price and it would have some relevance. However, this is not the case. And a number of shares on issue for a company will vary wildly from company to company. And the way to think of it is if you're going to eat a whole pizza. If you cut the pizza into eight slices and you ate the whole lot, how much pizza would you eat? And would you eat more or less pizza if you cut it into 32 slices? If you don't know the answer to the question, I'll let you figure it out. Now, just just as an aside, a, a thing that a lot of companies do to a, a, attract gullible investors that may not understand this is they'll issue a significant amount of shares to make the share price look really low. So that's why you see so many companies, or one of the reasons anyway, you see so many companies in Australia, for example, they're trading at one or two cents or nine cents a share or 15 cents a share or whatever it might be. And that's because they've issued a significant amount of shares to attract investors in that might not understand how this works. So it is something that you, you know, you don't not buy a stock because it's 15 cents per share, but it is something that that you definitely need to be aware of as, as an investor. And I always think about it as if I'm buying the whole company. Um, and if, if, the, if the stock was $100 million, of, of course I don't have $100 million, but if the market was $100 million, sorry, of course I don't have $100 million, but I think as if, you know, would I pay $100 million for this company that's going to make $10 million next year, for example. And, of course, the the profits are, are, are also divided on, on a per-share basis. So if you had a, a stock with 100 shares outstanding and it was making $100, then you'd be making $1 per share. So the the, the real way to think about it is in, in, in on a per-share basis, what, what's your earnings power per share. Um, so let, let's use an example just to illustrate this. A2 Milk, um, this is recorded during the week, so this, this stock price may have changed by now, but A2 Milk was trading at $11.35 per share, and Meridian Energy is trading at $3.58 per share. Based on value, what do you think is a larger company? Now, if you only had the share price to go with, and you're a, or you're a new investor, you might make the assumption that it was A2 Milk. But A2 Milk, at least currently, has a market cap of $8.34 billion and 734 million shares outstanding, while Meridian is the larger company at $9.2 billion, but it has 2. billion shares outstanding, so the share price is lower. So, you know, your assumption would be dead wrong in that situation. And if you take an extreme example, and I have, I have cherry-picked this one, the A-class stock of Berkshire Hathaway, which trades on the New York Stock Exchange, trades at just under $300,000 per share, but it is a company that has a market cap of nearly half of Apple, which trades at only $150, million, $150 per share. So $150 compared to $300,000, you know, you'd make the assumption that the $300,000 company is much larger, but it's not the case. They just have less shares outstanding. So <clears throat> I have a challenge for you. When, when you tell people that you're interested in the stock market, they will inevitably ask you, 
for a couple of examples of companies that you're interested in or companies that you're invested in. And one common objection will be is, is on the stock, in the stock market, even people that aren't involved in the stock market, one thing they seem to know is the price of companies. And Phil Fisher has a quote that the, in, in the stock market, there's the people know the, the price of everything but the value of nothing. But that's another a, a quote from another day. And the, the objection will be, I wouldn't buy that share price it, it is too high now you can have a crack at explaining the problem to them and it's but it'll probably be hard and your eyes will glaze over and you won't be the most popular person at the party but what i recommend instead is that you direct them to this episode of the podcast it'll save you a lot of hassle and embarrassment but it'll ho- hopefully also help grow interest in the podcast so have that secondary result as well I'm going to talk marijuana stocks again. I'll take you all the way back to episode 9. If you haven't listened to episode 9, on episode 9 predominantly I give a warning about investing in marijuana stocks. So this episode came out on September 28th, 2018, and it was right in the middle of the mania surrounding pot stocks. Now, I still think it's a mania, but it was especially amplified at that time. And I thought I'd revisit what I discussed in in that episode. Now, first I'd like to disclaim what I'm about to say, September 28th, that was only 112 days ago, which isn't an eternity and it's certainly not long enough to be making, I guess, a long-term investment-based decision on. So now, and I, I probably get as, as many wrong as I get right, but my basic thesis at the time was that the marijuana industry has a fairly good chance of becoming a real and profitable industry. I mean, it's already an extremely profitable industry at the moment, and it's not even legal. So you can <laughs> you can imagine how much money it would make if it was legal, and it's probably going to be a bit of, bur- bit of business when it's legal because the, the downside risks might not have the same extremity as what they do now. So I still believe in that thesis. Um, The marijuana industry, both medical and recreational, is likely to be a fantastic growth industry once it has worked through its legal issues. I don't have much doubt about it. But just because something is a growth growth industry doesn't mean there is easy money to be made. I'll use an example to illustrate this that Warren Buffett frequently uses, so I'm going to plagiarise his work again. Uh, He talks about the car industry in the early 1900s. And at the time, it wouldn't have taken too much of a genius to figure out that that was going to be a huge growth industry and if you could have envisaged the impact and the economic impact it would have on our lives as a species then you probably would have dropped everything and, and gone out and invested in car companies like people are doing marijuana companies now and how would that have gone well there's a great list on wikipedia of defunct or bankrupt automobile manufacturers in the united states and just under letter a I counted 135. I couldn't be bothered doing more than just letter A, but I guess there's over 2,000 on that list, and that's just in the United States. And out of that, out of those companies, you think of who makes cars today. You know, there's there's lots of brands, but there might be 10 different companies that manufacture cars, and most of them have been bankrupt at some point in their existence. And I think also Tesla might have been the first car to IPO since Ford in 1956. So net, and, and you know, we all know you know, Tesla's obviously doing some fantastic things, but they're not a very profitable company yet. So net, I think investing in cars has been extremely difficult. And it it would have been long odds in the 1900s of picking those winners out of that 2000, but it wouldn't have been impossible. Um, and I think the same goes for the marijuana industry today. Picking the winners out of this industry is going to be hard. And it's, it's just like the internet companies I think I spoke about in the past. And there's another equally long list on Wikipedia of internet companies that failed when the tech bubble burst. And 
an, an example is if you heard of eToys.com, I hadn't, of course, but they were an online toy retailer whose stock price hit its high of 84.35 per share in October 1999. In February 2001, it filed bankruptcy with 247 million in debt. That's an online toy company blew 247 million in debt. That's not including the shareholders' funds. That's just in debt. Um, it was acquired by KB Toys, which also went bankrupt. Another one is CD Now, an, an online retailer of CDs. They reached a valuation of $1 billion in 1998. It was acquired in the year 2000 for $117 million and was later shut down. So, you know, I hadn't heard of any of those stocks. You wouldn't have either. There's, there's a whole list of them there. But the, I guess the, the, the point is, is in, in 15 years' time, if the marijuana industry is very strong, Will you remember all the companies that have been shut down? You know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And same as car companies, there were some big era winners from this era. And some of the largest companies in the world, if you think of Amazon, and you may have heard of Google, um, just to name a couple, you know, but picking these out of thousands and thousands of companies, it's, it seems simple in retrospect, but I think it's, it's much harder at the time, even though everyone knew it was a growth industry. And the three companies that I spoke about in episode nine were Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, and Tilray. And since that time, from high to low, Canopy Growth, the stock has fallen over 30%. It was a lot more, but it's bounced back recently. Aurora Can- Cannabis has fallen over 40%, and Tilray, Tilray has fallen over 70%. And it's been a tough market in that time as well, but the market itself is probably down 7 or 8%, and you know, those stocks have massively underperformed and I actually read the other day that Constellation Brands that was a massive alcohol company they owned brands like Corona and things like that 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 they actually invested in canopy growth now from an accounting perspective they wrote off a chunk of that investment recently so already um so let's think of this as an investment as opposed to anything else let's think of it from an investing perspective and remember that investing is as I say, is investing is laying out capital today with the idea of getting more capital back in the future. That's all investing is. It's it's quite simple when you think about it. And Canopy Growth, that currently has a market cap of $14 billion. So if you're laying out money today, you're buying it at a valuation of $14 billion. So that's what you're laying out essentially when you're buying it. Even if you're only buying a, sh- a few shares, that's the economic significance of what you're doing. So in 2018, the company made revenue of about $70 million. And on an operating basis, the company lost over $81 million and they had $178 million in capital expenditures, which combined for a total of negative $259 million. So the question is, is if you lay out $14 billion today, and just to put that in perspective, that's that with that money you could buy nearly three Fonterras, and if you're living in New Zealand, you're all, you, you know how big and significant Fonterra is, so with that money you could buy three Fonterras, and when you're doing that, you're expecting the company to generate more than $15 billion US dollars in the future. And that might happen, and it, it could happen, I'll give you that, but nothing is impossible. But the thing is, even if it does happen, it's certainly not going to happen overnight. They're not going to go from losing $250 million to, to making 3 or $4 billion overnight. So the next question is, how long will it take? And I think it's impossible to predict with any degree of certainty whether canopy growth is, A, capable of this at all, making over 4 14 million and b how long it will take i think it's, it's it's very difficult to predict that and just as an aside you might be wondering how the company can survive when it's hemorrhaging that, that kind of money and, and the answer is that they they issued 537 million in shares last year so they they 
generated 537 million by selling new shares and basically increasing the share counts and diluting the existing shareholders. And this sort of thing can go on for a long time. Um, but if investors are happy to keep giving them money, and there certainly seem to be plenty of investors happy to do this at the moment, and that's what they've done for each of the last five years, I think, is they've issued more shares to to keep the cash flow on the bottom line positive, so the company can stay running. Um, of course, that means a higher share count and a greater dilution of shareholders. But I guess the the the, the key thing is just like the tech bubble, these things can unravel very quickly when the ride stops and the gravy train stops, and people are you know aren't as happy to to give out money as what they were in the past. So I just say be careful on it. I guess the final word on marijuana stocks is that there's nothing wrong with investing in them. Um, I, I would say that if we look back in 10, 15 years' time, we'll be able to point out some big winners, no doubt about it. Well, very little doubt about it. And I've been picking on canopy growth today just because it's an easy example, but it could easily be canopy growth as well, and I, I'm not making any prediction on that. But if you want to make a call on who that is, then great. I hope you find the next Amazon in the haystack and make a, a lot of money, but you know, I think there's probably easier things out there to, to look at, but it, it depends on what you're interested in. Right, that's about all I have time for today. Thanks very much for listening into the podcast. I know it was a, a little bit different to what we'd normally do. We normally discuss individual stocks, but as I said, there wasn't much on this week, so we did something a little bit different. I hope you learned something from it or at least found it entertaining or interesting. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice and go see a financial advisor if you're looking for some. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give us a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also to share with your friends. It'd be great to build up some more listeners in the podcast. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 23 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 18th of January 2019. We'll see you all again next week.